So this is the account of Noah. Noah was a godly man. He was blameless among his contemporaries. He walked with God three times. He's trying to make the point there's a reason why God chose him. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. The earth was ruined in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and indeed it was ruined for all living creatures. Notice how many times God is saying the world is ruined. There is something wrong with this creation that you and I have never seen. There's something wrong with this creation that the Canaanites have never seen. There's something seriously major wrong that we, no human, has seen wrong with creation since then. But that doesn't mean it won't happen again. We just haven't seen it yet. For all the living creatures on the earth were sinful. Oh, that's interesting. You mean the cows are out there sinning? Yeah. Well, what way? If there are no humans ruling and subduing animals in a fallen world, then animals have no masters. And they become wild. And wild animals destroy. And if all your human rulers are only evil all the time, then they may be intentionally corrupting the animals, like dogfights or other things. The reality is, it's amazing how often God includes animals with the sin of humanity throughout the Bible. How often animals are also marked for judgment, as well as humans for sins. That when the Canaanites are to be killed, so are the animals for their sins. Now, I'm not saying like in a sinful way the way you think of sinful and go out and share Christ with them. But in a sense that animals without a master will become animals. Not that we have to domesticate every single animal, but there is a sense of providing and taking care of animals. And if you've watched the History Channel long enough, you can say, I'm glad humans are not like that. Now about to destroy the earth. Make for yourself an ark, a cypress wood. Make rooms on the ark and cover it with pitch inside and out. This is how you should make the ark. It would be 450 feet long. Now notice that this was all cubics in the original Hebrew. So he's to tell them to make this ark, and the flood is going to come, And he gives all these dimensions for the ark. But here's what's interesting. There's only two places in the entire Bible where God ever gives you the dimensions of something. The ark and the tabernacle. Which means this ark should be seen as some kind of a tabernacle. Here's what's also interesting. If you take the ark and the dimensions of the ark and multiply it by like three, it becomes the exact dimensions of the tabernacle. The ark also has three decks to it, like the waters above, the land, and the waters below. This is a little microcosm of the earth. It's a little microcosm of the garden. And what is God doing? He's recreating the garden because he's going to get all these animals into the garden, two by two, which is not exactly two by two, but we'll talk about that a little bit. And he's going to get humans on the ark, and he's going to create a little garden that's going to be like a tabernacle through 
this, they're going to receive redemption, just like the tabernacle brings redemption. This is the only time that a structure is given dimensions. The only other time is the book of Revelation with the city of God, but those aren't dimensions, but that's a whole other conversation. So you're like, what? They're covered in pitch. Okay, the ark is designed to stay afloat, not to be steered, because they don't need to be steered. They're not going anywhere. The entire earth is water. They developed this ark. Notice that it has a, a, a roof, has a skylight, which is the idea that the light will be coming from above into the ark. It's on the top rather than the sides. And there's a door, but there's no handle on the door. Why? Because God's going to close it, which is important because who's going to seal their redemption and salvation? Not humans. God seals your salvation and redemption. Now, here's also what's really cool. This word ark appears one other time in the Bible, and it's used of the basket made for Moses when he's placed in it. And just like this ark is built out of wood covered in pitch and tar, placed in the water to escape the judgment, so Moses will be placed in a basket covered with pitch and tar as an ark and enclosed to escape the waters of judgment because the Nile was the one killing all the babies. And so God is intentionally connecting you to that. And so we should not just hear, boat, really cool. We should be thinking salvation, redemption through chaos and destruction, just like he parted the waters to reveal the land. He's going to push the waters aside with the water displacement of a boat in order to save humanity and give them a little patch of land that will float around on the waters. And so he tells them to build this ark. He's going to bring everything to Noah. And notice that he also tells them to go two by two. Okay, so chapter 6 ends with that they're to bring two of every kind on the boat. So then we have our song, the Lord told Noah, okay, two by two. And notice this, it says in verse 22, and Noah did all that God commanded him. Indeed, he did. The twice mention of that means there was nothing that Noah did not obey. Every single detail he got right. And that's very important. That shows his righteousness. He doesn't say, well, God, this design doesn't make sense. Verse 1, chapter 7. Yahweh said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, for I consider you godly among this generation. You must take with you seven of every kind of clean animal. So which is it? Two or seven of every kind? Yes. In fact, the Hebrew word might actually be seven of every kind or seven pairs. So we don't actually know if it's seven or 14. Most likely it's probably 14, okay, because that's an even number. And it's a multiple of seven, so, which means completion. So what's the difference? They're to bring two of every kind of animal, because you need two animals to keep the population going the birds and the bees, if you didn't get through health class, right? So, but then he goes on and says, but seven of every kind of clean animal. Now, this is important because clean animals weren't really that much different from unclean animals. 
Now, when we get to Leviticus, we're going to be told what clean animals are. Well, they're animals that chew the cud, and they, have a, they don't have a split hoof and all this kind of stuff. And a lot of people made out things, well, that means that they were more like healthy animals to eat and that kind of stuff. The problem with that is we've discovered later that it really has nothing to do with health. And the other thing is, he doesn't list every animal in all of creation. Leviticus only talks about the animals that are in Israel. If he was trying to create a diet for all humans, that's a bad diet because it only applies to one country in the entire world. There's all these other animals that are not mentioned. And then later when we get to Acts chapter 10, and Peter has that vision of all those animals in the blanket, and God says, eat, eat, eat. And Peter's like, no, 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 we're not supposed to do this. And God's like, eat, I told you to. And then later he gets a knock on the door and it's a Gentile coming and he gets to the point of the vision. That's the point of clean and unclean animals. God was teaching separation. That there's some things that are not clean and there's some things that are clean. Now, why would he do this with animals and eating? Because what is it that you do more often in fellowship over more often? Meals. And in the ancient world, hospitality is everything. If you are a, a guest, they will always feed you. And you do not say no because that's an insult. But they will never sit and eat with you unless they consider you family. And so meals are at the heart of community and fellowship and family and covenants. So what better way to remind the Jews that they're not allowed to make covenants with the Gentiles, but then to weave the idea of clean and unclean right into their animals and what they eat. So that every time they're eating, they'll be reminded. Because the only time that you ever make a covenant or make somebody a family is you initiate with a, a meal. If I say, oh, we're family, let's make a covenant and we don't eat together, I'm lying. But if we sit down and break bread together, we're covenanting with each other. And as you're beginning to eat this food and the Gentiles bring all this unclean food and, because they don't care... It might be a little reminder to you, I shouldn't be doing this. And so there's a lot of things in the Bible that God weaves into the law that are not necessarily immoral. Like God says you're not allowed to wear part one fabric and part another fabric. Seriously, that's immoral? No, it's trying to remind them that they're to be separate and distinct from the world. And so a lot of these commands had nothing to do with morality or health, had everything to do with just a constant reminder that I am to be unlike the world, separate from them. Therefore, clean animals are animals that you can eat and animals that you can sacrifice. So why do you need more of them? Because your animals are going to become extinct really quickly if you only have two of every kind and you make a sacrifice to God. So, and we know that Noah, when, right when he gets off the boat, he's going to make a sacrifice to God. It's like, well, there goes the rabbits. Right? Well, not really, because they multiply. So... That's the reality. Now, once again, there's no scientific reasoning of, can you get this many animals on this boat? God doesn't try to wrestle with that issue. Now, can you? Yes, because there are scientists who have gone in. Notice that the Bible didn't answer that question. We went to science, and science could answer the question because God is the author of science and the Bible. He just authored the Bible to be theological and science to be practical and scientific. So science has shown that you can get all these because it's species. 
It's not like you have to have every kind of dog, like a poodle and a bulldog and all that kind of stuff. Two, you can get infants and eggs and babies on there. They can be in hibernation, which means it's not like you have to worry about the lions feeding on the, the lambs. And a lot of animals hibernate. And you've got eggs, and eggs don't take up a lot of space. You don't have to deal with them. They're only on the boat for 150 days, which means you don't have to supply a lot of food. Plus, if they're in hibernation, you have to supply food. And even if they're not in a hibernation, a lion can go three months without eating again after a good feeding. So the reality is it's been shown that this is possible. Even on a biological level, there's a certain type of a horse that has a genetic makeup for every type of horse that can come from that. So, and that's true of other animals. So, but the Bible didn't answer that question. Science answered that question. And I think that's a good example that that's not God's intention in this book. Yet, when science comes along and can answer that question, it does not contradict the Bible in any kind of way. It's just the Bible wasn't interested in that. And so these animals get on the boat. Now, obviously, the animals that don't get on the boat are fish. Because God can kind of take care of those in the flood on, on his own. On that very day, Noah entered the ark, accompanied by his son, Shem, and Ham, and Japheth. So we have this chiastic structure in the book of Genesis with the flood. Notice how you, how you have the top part mirroring the bottom part. But notice at the center is Yahweh remembers Noah. Everything leads to the center, and the center usually tells you what God is focusing on the most. What is the main idea of the story? The story is God made a promise to humanity, and he honors that promise. He did not forget it. That's the thing. That's at the heart of it. God makes covenants, and he always remembers his covenants. He always honors his covenants. And if you want, these are all my notes that are online, so... There's another chiastic structure with numbers. It's interesting how many times seven shows up in numbers and all that kind of stuff. So at the top, you have seven days of waiting for the flood. Then seven days of waiting for the flood is repeated again. Twice it's mentioned, and then twice it's mentioned at the end. Then you have 40 days of flooding, and 150 days of the water's triumphing, and then 150 days of the water waning away, disappearing. So the center of the focus is this that God is faithful to judge the world as he promised and faithful to rescue and push the waters aside as he promised. Both of these chiastic structures, one with the narrative and the other with the numbers, is making the point that God always honors his promises. And it's woven in to the structure of the text. Now, we've already talked about seven. Seven is the number of completion. But 40 is the number of judgment or testing and trials. So when you have Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, it's their testing, it's their trials. When you have Jesus being tempted for 40 days and 40 nights, it's his testing, it's his trials. So 40 is often used as a number of trials or testing and sometimes judgment. Because the judgment of 40 years was both a judgment as well as a testing and a trial. So even with Christ being tempted, it could be seen as a judgment because he's going to end up, he's in the wilderness because of the judgment of mankind. He's going to end up taking the judgment of mankind. That's why he has to be tested and tried to show that he is capable of taking the judgment of God. Now 150 
is a multiple of three. And three is the number of redemption. And so notice that the water, the seven is the waiting, meaning that this judgment is going to be complete. The 40 means that this is going to be a trial and a testing of Noah's faith. But the 150 shows that this flood is all about redemption. This flood is all about redemption. And so it's not important just to know numbers. Multiples are everything. God uses multiples a lot to make the same point that the number makes. And so he sends this flood and it wipes it out. Now notice what begins to happen. The waters begin to burst forth from the underworld, or just by underworld being under the ground, and they begin to burst forth as the rains come down, and eventually what's going to happen is, with all those clouds, the sun and the moon and the stars are going to disappear, the land disappears, all animals and all humans are being wiped out, so that when the the rains are all done, what you're left with is a formless and empty dark watery, chaotic mass. He has returned the world to its pre-seven-day creation state the exact same way. Why? Because of sin. So God decreates the world. And this is very important to understand. He creates the world showing that he has the right to bring life into the land and redeem humanity. But he also shows he has the right to decreate the world in order to bring judgment for sins. Because he has authority over all things. But then as the rain stops, the waters above and the waters below will divide. The waters will begin to recede, which means the waters below will be divide. And then the sun, the moon, the stars will come out. Plants are the first thing to begin to appear as the birds fly out. And then the ark opens up and animals and humans get on the ark. And we have a new creation. Not literally a new creation, but metaphorically a new creation. And so God is using the language a formless and empty darkness in a watery abyss to communicate the idea of redemption just like he did in Genesis 1. And this is why I also think this lends more evidence to the fact that you should see Genesis 1 in that metaphorical redemption language rather than a scientific, this is exactly how God did it, because he, this is how he's using it now. He's not scientifically, literally destroying the earth. He's just metaphorically returning the earth to a pre-creation state. And you're going to see this theme again when you get to the exodus out of Egypt. He's going to decreate Egypt and leave it formless and empty with darkness. And then he's going to kill the firstborn sons, undoing humanity, and you see that. And then when you get the book of Revelation, the the plagues of Revelation match up with all the days of creation. And the plagues of Egypt match up with all the days of creation. So this idea of decreating and redeeming is a theme that God keeps using over and over again, formless and empty and darkness and a watery chaotic abyss, which he will use the watery chaotic abyss to wipe out the army of the Egyptians. So this theme is a theme that you're going to see throughout the Bible on multiple times. So Noah then sends out birds. What's the first bird that he sends out? The raven. Ravens can fly further. They fly out very far and they keep coming back and, and it's, it's, it's disappointing that there's nothing there. Then eventually he sends out a dove and the dove keeps coming out until it comes back with a olive branch. An olive branch is a symbol of peace and covenants and the symbol of Israel. 
But what's interesting is that when, the, when Noah brings the dove back, many scholars have pointed out that this is probably one of the most romantic verses in the entire Bible. Because the bird goes out to find a place to rest, which is a pun on the name of Noah, which is comfort, which can also be translated Noah or rest. So the bird is going out to look for a Noah, and when it couldn't find a Noah, it returns back to the Noah that it knows. And then it says that Noah took the bird into his bosom. And that idea of that ruler and subduer who is lovingly nurturing the bird and treating it as its own and sending it out to find another Noah, like launching your children out into the world, is a very beautiful poetic way of saying this is what man was supposed to be. Humanity was supposed to be the people who lovingly took the animals into themselves to provide a rest, and we only released them into a rest that we provided for them, to nurture them, and that we are the people who rule and subdue by redeeming humanity and providing an ark of redemption for people. And so Noah becomes the epitome of this rest. And in those days, Noah will comfort his people, including the animals. And what God is showing you is that this is what humanity is supposed to be for both creation and for humanity, to be an ark, to be a garden. But what's also so cool about it is it's showing that despite this horrible sin that we're in, It's possible for humanity to be that. And Noah doesn't even have Christ or the Holy Spirit. And yet it's possible to be that. And so in the midst of all this evil and all this chaos, and a way that Hollywood couldn't even be brave enough to put in the movie of what they were really truly doing, God paints this beautiful picture of a Noah who does everything that God says, a Noah who is a rest, a Noah who's a redeemer, only as he submits obediently to the will of God. And notice that Noah cannot be the Noah for the bird until after he's already been obedient to God and God has already done his act of salvation. And that's when humanity can shine in submission to God. And so he sends the bird out until it finds a place to rest. At that point, he's now confidence, but then they have to wait longer. And the ark begins to settle on the mountain, and they get off the mountain, and God is going to establish Noah as the second Adam. And a brand new creation with a brand new slate, a man who is righteous, a man who is a rest for humanity and creation, and God is going to restart all over again in a new garden. The sad part is, the story of Noah ends with him getting drunk, which means he really truly is a second Adam. And this is the theme that God's going to keep making is, yes, humanity is being fruitful, multiplying, being blessed, but they're dying, and there's judgment. And this is the tension that you have to deal with, is that man is made in the image of God, but we are evil to the core. And there's a, right that, there's a way that seems right to us, but just leads to evil and destruction and death. And this is the point that God is making.
that the only hope that we have is when God steps in and creates arcs for us. That's the only hope. We cannot save ourselves.